Amen. I want to talk to you about the difference between living a life of purpose and significance versus living a life of vainglory. I think the devil confuses these two things. A Christian, or for that matter anyone, they cannot live a life, a successful existence, if they do not believe their actions, their words, their sacrifices, their time counts for something. Our willingness to give is oftentimes directly correlated to our belief in the efficacy, the effectiveness, the impact of that gift that we would be asked to give. Nobody wants to live an insignificant life. Nobody wants to live a life without impact. And so we look for ways to find that life of impact and significance. People say, I want to have impact on others. And so they become doctors. Many of them motivated by the right thing. Some of them not. They don't want to be off the radar of importance, of significance. Somebody says, I want to be part of something greater that affects great change in the world. And so they join a military. And as a piece of a great big whole, they, they feel like they can share in the impact of the collective military or the nation as a whole. There is this craving in us. We don't want to believe that we were born for no reason. And so there is a legitimate desire to live a significant life. Can you all agree with that? What is the difference between that legitimate desire and vainglory? Vanity. Amen. Brother Jason said it's who you're trying to please. He says it's who you're doing it for is the, is the, is the question. But what if somebody says, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that in the kingdom of God. I want to do great things in the kingdom of God. What about that? Did that attitude ever exist in the days of Jesus? Did it? Give me an example. Brother David reminds us of James and John. Can one of us sit on your left and one on your right? Or their mother who asked when they couldn't. Do you feel like there was a little bit of vanity creeping into that? I think the Bible would have us believe that there was. What about when Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup that I drink? Some people aspire to certain places and Okay, I've never drank the cup that he drank, but I say to them in my heart, Lord, can this person drink the cup? 
Can they swallow what this is really going to cost their flesh? And oftentimes I say, they will drink it, but not yet, and they're going to wish they hadn't when they do. So what is this line of vainglory? Is it who it's for? How do we know that vanity is not driving our desire for significance? What does the word significance mean? What's the root of it? Ah, the root of significance is sign, right? It shares the same root as to signal something. And many people, they want to be a a flashing neon sign. And they end up being a yellow warning sign or a red flashing stop sign. They want to be noticed. They want to be seen. They want to be involved because they're terrified that nobody's going to think they're important. And that attitude can come into our service for the kingdom. Do you feel like Paul ever addressed this? Didn't he say, do not, do, do not serve to be seen by men? Jesus said the same thing. Paul in Colossians, Jesus in Matthew, he said, they do what they do to be seen by men. He even talked about people neglecting their appearance for that purpose. He told the Pharisees, you neglect your appearance to be noticed. So don't let anybody ever tell you that that disheveled look is because they don't care about it. (laughs) They neglect their appearance to be noticed by men. You neglect your appearance to be noticed by men. So Paul says that the gospel can be preached for selfish gain, for selfish ambition. He's relieved that at least it's preached, but he's not encouraged by what's motivating it. And it does. It comes down to who it's for, doesn't it? Is it for the glory of God? Is it for a genuine love? Or is it, is it for my chance to participate? We say, I want to participate. I want to participate. Okay, that's good to a point. But that's not the end of it. Your desire to help has got to supersede your desire to participate. Because your desire to participate is about what you get out of it. Whereas your desire to help is what other people are going to get out of it. It is the enemy's business to incapacitate our victories by convincing us that what we're doing doesn't matter. It is the enemy's business to incapacitate your victory by convincing you that what you do doesn't matter. There is a certain power that is available to you when you are convinced that your actions will prove consequential for someone or something important. And that power is drained from your efforts when the enemy says, it doesn't really matter. We cannot be vainglorious, but we have to be convinced that we are God's tools and that our life is intended to matter. 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she was in the courtyard where the angel approached her, did she think that her actions didn't matter? If she had thought they didn't matter, she wouldn't have been doing them or doing with them with the attitude that would have uh, evoked the response from the angel, Blessed art thou, highly favored one, and blessed art thou among women. When Rebecca, the future grandmother of all God's people, is at the well, she doesn't know that a stranger from Canaan has come in and is praying about her. She doesn't know that a future husband awaits, and with that union, the inheritance of all the purpose and people of God. She doesn't know it. She never knows the extent to which her small actions matter, but she believes they matter. She is not doing what she does merely to get by. She has dignity. She has respect for what she's doing. And when the man says, may I have a little something to drink, it just comes from inside of her. Yes, my Lord. She lets down the jar and let me also draw water for your camels. She's not calculating. She's not second-guessing. She's not saying, if I make a grand gesture, maybe I'll get noticed. That's not even on her radar. This is a stranger. And at that, he's an old man. He wasn't an eligible husband for this young virgin who was, as the Bible tells us, remarkably beautiful. She wasn't trying to do a florid display, an exhibition of just how useful she could be if only kingdom leaders could get lay their eye on her. It did not come through manipulation. It did not come through strategy. It came from inside. Spontaneously. In your own life, think of difficulties that you face. If I asked you tonight, if I pulled together a team of the most qualified construction brothers, brothers gifted in construction, and I said to you, brothers, I've got a proposal. We need to tear down and re-landscape, do some major earthworks. We need to replace five dilapidated food booths at the fair and build from scratch to finish a brand new uh, booth that incorporates five, a brand new building that incorporates five booths in itself, and we need to have this done in six weeks. And it was springtime. What are the odds that that would get done in six weeks if we launched on April 1st? Zip nada. Brother Brian says zero. There is no chance. I'm going to show you something here if you listen with me. There's no chance. And yet, 
When we come up with such a crazy idea six weeks before the fair, and Thanksgiving is in six weeks, we know it matters. And the conviction that it matters floods our muscles, our minds, our hearts, our relationships with anointing, fervor, power to get this done, to do the impossible, because it matters. When you don't think it matters, it doesn't matter. When you know it matters, you can do it. Let's, let's picture another scenario, okay? Let's picture a husband who comes home and says, my wife is always worried that y'all think I'm talking about her, so just footnote, I'm not talking about her. Um, so uh, let's imagine a husband who comes home and says, honey, the yard is messy. We need to clean it up. Okay, maybe one toy gets picked up, another. Honey, the yard is messy and the house is a mess. Could we please pick it up? Next day, honey, the house is still a little mess, messy. Could we, could we try to pick this up? I just, I hate to think of people coming by and seeing that junk on the porch and such. And Honey, are we, are we being mindful of, of uh, keeping a good witness with the house? And the wife perhaps feels like, oh, I've got school and I've got phone calls, and I've got cooking, and I've got gardening, and I just don't know if I can clean the house on time. Ring! Hello? Well, hello, dear. It's Grandma. We're going to be there in an hour and a half. All of a sudden, what was impossible for the past week is empowered. It's anointed. I mean, that house is going to get clean. Those dishes are going to get washed. That yard is going to be straightened. It's going to happen with less time. You following me here? So there is a key. There's a key that unlocks or locks the storehouses of your potential. And that key is the conviction that what you do matters. And you say, well, that's the problem. If only I had a job that mattered. That's the problem. If only I had relationships that mattered. But the first and foremost relationship you have is with the Lord. And he wants to know whether he matters enough to elicit from you the activation of energy to present an acceptable sacrifice. Because every day of your life, the Lord pays a visit to you. Not a sparrow falls without him knowing, and not a job is failed or undone without the Lord knowing. He is the one who is coming. Not the president, nor the governor, nor some politician, nor some rich man, nor grandpa or grandma, not even your pastor, but the Lord Jesus is going to come into the quiet places of your life, and he's going to see something. And he's either going to get a message from you that says, Lord, you matter. You matter. What you lay eyes on in my life matters. Forgive me for thinking otherwise. 
Here it is, Jesus. Or he's going to see something quite different. Quite different. What did Paul say to the Colossians? He said, whatever may be your task. Can everybody just say that with me? Whatever may be your task, work at it heartily from the soul. We like to categorize these are spiritual things. These are practical things. I talked about this with the disembodied heads message, right? But Paul doesn't do that. He said, whatever your practical task may be, connect it to your heart. Tie it to your soul as something done for the Lord and not for men. Now, this is how you read that task. Whenever God gives you a task that is for Him instead of men, do it heartily. That's the old dying translation. So you say, I'm not giving myself to this because it's not yet for the Lord. But if I could have a glorious place, I would do it heartily. I would do it from my soul. But as yet, I don't. Is that what Paul said? Is that what he said? No, he said, whatever may be your task. Tasks that are glorious and tasks that are inglorious. Tasks for men and tasks for kings, for God and for everything in between. Whatever may be your task, work at it heartily from the soul as something done for the Lord and not for men knowing with all certainty that it is from God and not from men that you receive the inheritance which is your real reward. The one whom you are actually serving is the Lord Christ, the Messiah. So he says this, the one whom you are actually serving, indicating that there is an apparent service that is wrong. We think we're serving this person. We think we're serving this problem. We think we're serving on this job. But who we're actually serving is God. Because He said, My love for you and my sacrifice for you warrants the best you have to give. We say, But Lord, I'm not giving it to you. And He says, Yes, you are. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord because you're no longer your own. You're doing it in my name, on my behalf. And then he makes this interesting twist. He says, do it as unto the Lord, for the inheritance comes from the Lord, indicating to us that if it is done for the Lord, it will be empowered by the Lord. Do you follow that? I think that's interesting. If you don't believe that whatever your task may be, if you don't believe that it can bring honor to the Lord, you will fail in that task. You will ultimately prove an unprofitable servant and you will be stuck in that place of failure until you decide that whatever you do, you're going to do it unto the Lord, whatever it is. I don't want to treat us like children and elaborate that too much, but I know you can understand what Paul is getting at here. If it's for the Lord, it matters. If it matters, it's possible. 
If it doesn't matter, it's because you've forgotten it's for the Lord. And if it's not for the Lord and it doesn't matter, it's impossible. And that's the definition of a failure. We must set the course of our lives by the compass of God's high calling. That we are here to be witnesses and servants of the King of Kings. Somebody read to me Philippians 3.14. And somebody else turn to 1 Corinthians 15.58. Who has that? Somebody, anybody. 15, 1 Corinthians 15.58. Somebody else, Hebrews 6 and 10. Who's got it? Brother Gabe's got Hebrews 6 and 10. Who has Philippians 3.14? I heard a lot of Bibles flipping and flapping, but... Okay, what translation? All right, let's hear it. It says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Anybody have an NIV? Okay, how does that read? Grady's always got the NIV. Because we feel like we have to give the pagans some say in this theology. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he calls it in King, New King James the upward call. Who, what translation renders it the high call? Do you have that? Amen. We'll just stick with the upward call. The high calling or the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You have to live, you have to set the course of your life according to the compass of a high calling. Because there are things you're going to be asked to do that in themselves are menial, perhaps banal and boring. But if you're putting them at the feet of Jesus, if you're doing them for the reputation of Jesus, they're none of those above things. They're meaningful. Okay, who's got 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain for the Lord. Amen. He says always abounding. Do you, have we heard that word yet tonight? Grace much more abounds. Shares the same English root as bountiful or to bound across the room. Amen. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. You say, well, I want grace. I just don't want works. Well, what does Paul say? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked more than all of you. And not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Thank you, Jesus. So if we want the grace of God to abound, we need to believe that our work is not in vain. Do you think it's the devil's business to teach you that the service of God is in vain? Why does the devil want you to think that the service of God is in vain? Because Eliezer's prayer is going to go unanswered. Because you're going to write off things like drawing water and you're going to reach for palaces. He wants to convince you that your small service, that your small acts of service, that they are in vain. Because if he can do that, he can paralyze the advance of the kingdom of God on the earth. Paralyzed in the hearts of people longing for something great. 
What did Jesus say about those who wish to be great? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to learn to be the servant of all. You say, well, I look at so-and-so and he's not a servant. You look at so-and-so. You with your blinded perspective. You with your false vision. You with your colored glasses. You with your unreality. You don't have a clue what so-and-so is or isn't. But Jesus said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, he who wishes to be the greatest must become the servant of all. Amen. So there's the key. Does it matter? Turn it. It'll be possible. Does it matter? Turn it back. It'll be impossible. Just make that decision in your mind. Does it matter? Does it matter? The devil wants the saints to believe that their labor in God is in vain. Because if they believe it's in vain, they're going to stop. Nobody's going to invest in something that they don't believe has any hope of return or benefit. Let's hear Hebrews 6 and 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not unjust to forget what you've done. The writer of Hebrews is saying that lie that the devil tells you is an accusation that says, Yahweh, you're unjust. If you believe your life doesn't matter, then you have to assume that your God is unjust. For my God says, whatsoever a man sows, he's going to reap. Cast your bread upon the water, and after many days it will return. My God says, make an acceptable sacrifice, and your heart will be assured and know what is his good and acceptable and pleasing will. My God says, come unto me, you, labor, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find the fulfillment to your soul, for your soul that you long for. But the accuser of the brethren and the accuser of God says your life doesn't matter. And he turns the lock on the door, the storehouse of all your pent-up power and energy and capacity in the kingdom. So God is asking you tonight, does your life matter? Does your work, do your works matter? And with your mind, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can turn that key and say, I've got a place. I've got a purpose because I've, call, I've got a God who calls those things that are not. That's me as though they are. That's who I want to be. Amen. And I know that my labor for the Lord is not in vain and my God is not unjust. Amen. I am going to reap if I do not lose heart. Isn't that what he says? Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart. That tells me that the people who can't survive the season of planting and waiting and make it to the season of harvest, they don't reap. He says, you will reap if you do not lose heart. If you do lose heart, will you reap? You will plant, you will water, you will pray, and you will get impatient. And you will walk away, and you'll say, okay, I'm going to try again. And you will plant, and you will water, and you will pray, and you will get impatient. 
It's not up to you how fast things happen, how quick your fruit grows, or the circumstance changes, or the evidence appears that everything was worthwhile. It's not up to you. Pray and never give up. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice and leave the harvest up to God. But he promises you will reap if you don't lose heart. If you find somebody who says, I never reap, I'll show you somebody who always loses heart. Did you hear what I said? Find me everybody who says, I never reap, and I'll find you a group of people who always lose heart and cannot endure patiently. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own stupid understanding that's always wrong. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Thank you, Jesus. Does it matter? Does it matter? Does it matter? Your life is like a plane or a car guided by a compass where north is always changing. If you don't believe in your essential value to God's purpose, if you do God's will, God's way, in God's time. You are not the one to evaluate whether it's meaningful or not. If he said to do it, it's meaningful. Mud has no intrinsic meaning for very many creatures except mud daubers and some other creatures like that. But when God said, go down to the brook and smear some mud in your eyes, it matters. Menial things, when done for God and in obedience to God, produce miracles. Okay, Lord. The pool of Siloam has no special power apart from God. But if he says go dip in it, it's got power. The Jordan is not special. But menial tasks done in obedience to God unlock miracles, don't they? My dad spoke to us recently, and I would have thought he had been in our meeting when I ministered about the waves. Do you remember when I ministered out here about the waves and, and he was afraid of the waves? He said, we, might, we have got to stop looking at obstacles as the problem. And I'm going to add to that. I'm going to say we have got to stop looking at obstacles as the problem and start identifying obstacles as the maker of the man or the woman we've asked to become. So Joseph is a dreamer, right? Jacob's got a promise. Joseph's got a dream. And one day they just get this, this word from God and they set the compass of their life and the next morning it's all fulfilled, isn't it? Neatly wrapped in Christmas paper with a bow on top and a letter. Love God. Come on now. That's how we want it, isn't it? Um, is that how it goes? Is that how it went? I want to ask you, when Joseph had his, his inspiration from God, his dream from God, and he ended up in a muddy pit... You think he's, his faith struggled? When he's trudging behind 
the camels as a slave of the Ishmaelites? Do you think he asked some questions? Do you think he fought some bitterness? Hallelujah, he was human. I know he did. But what impacts me so deeply about Joseph is that his faithfulness was not conditional on his circumstance. Why was he faithful in Potiphar's house? Because it was a good setting. And Potiphar and his wife were just really special Egyptians. And, and uh, it was a glorious job, you know, managing the crops and all. And that's why he was able to do it. He was in a dead-end job with a stupid boss with a lying wife. I don't know if you could get any worse than that. Can I get a witness? Amen. And the Bible says he prospered him. He worked harder and better than everyone else, and he was put in charge of his whole house. Why? Because that little chest of promise and power and energy in his life was unlocked. He knew it mattered. He was doing it for God. He knew the God in heaven who put the dream in his heart in the first place was watching even when he was serving a jerk. And when he got to prison, how was it that he was able to distinguish himself? Do you have that perspective? God, wherever I land. You know my dreams. You know my longings. You know my prayers. Amen. You know what I want for my life. But whatever my task may be, Paul says, whatever may be your task, work at it heartily from your soul as something done for the Lord and not for men. He wasn't faithful for Potiphar. He was faithful for the God of the Hebrews who was watching him all this time. Joseph wasn't ready to waltz right into the most influential position in the known world. Joseph wasn't ready to take on the responsibility for saving that whole region of the earth. He wasn't ready. There was still pride in him. There were things that had to die. And the obstacles came up so that he could press on through them and faith would survive and trust would survive but his pride would die along the way. Thank you, Jesus. His confidence, the way he spoke to his father and his mother there at the beginning, it would change, wouldn't it? That need to prove something, it would fall away. If Joseph could believe his life meaningful and worth excelling in in a prison in Egypt, what gives us the reason to complain and assume that ours is not? That it is not worthy of everything we have to give for the sake of God. Joseph's dad was going through the same thing in his own way, wasn't he? Amen. All of the first patriarchs from all the way down to Joseph had to give up their, their prized son. You notice that? Abraham had to give up Isaac. 
Isaac had to give up Esau when he put the blessing on Jacob instead, and a great trembling came over him. They had to give up their plans for how things were supposed to unfold because that's what their son represented. And Jacob had to give up Joseph. You remember that? He mourned for Joseph. He had to give up his wife, the wife he loved, Rachel. When he met Pharaoh, when Jacob met Pharaoh, he said, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, full of evil and hardship. One translation says that he, he cried out, my days have been few and full of trouble. He thought he had given God everything he needed to give him. He'd given Joseph. He'd given Rachel. He'd given Simeon. But you know, all those had been taken. They hadn't really been given. Do you see the difference? And there's a way of giving that is really just grudgingly acquiescing. And then there's a way of giving that is painful and hard, but it's opening your hand <sighs> and trusting, even if it's the last thing you do alive. Remember when they went to Joseph and Joseph hasn't disclosed himself and he said, I'm not giving you this grain and I'm not letting your brother Simeon out of prison unless you bring back your youngest brother Benjamin. I know that Joseph loved the affection of his father. I know that Joseph knew how Jacob loved his sons because he had basked in the favor of his dad. You know that, right? So when he asked for Benjamin, he was putting his dad to a test. At this point in the saga, the son had reached a point of trust and surrender that was pure and beautiful and liberating. And he wanted to see if his kin could reach the same place of obedience to God. He's not trying to be mean to his dad. He had nothing against his dad. He loved his dad. And he knew that Benjamin's departure was going to test his dad. God was inspiring him to provoke the same scenario that Abraham faced on Mount Moriah when he said, if it pleases you, take your son, your only son, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. You follow me here? And so Judah goes back and says to Jacob, the ruler of this land is a demanding man. No, he's just wanting to see if you're a trusting man. The ruler of this man, of this land, is a demanding man, and he says that he will not let Simeon go, and he will not give us grain unless we take back Benjamin. Thank you, Jesus. And Jacob rejects it. They, they get to the point of starvation. And that's where you get apart from this trust. You reach the very brink of failure of total defeat and dismantling. And Jacob, Jacob cries out and he says, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is dead. Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin too. 
Now, I've ministered this part before, but I want you to listen to me. There are times in your walk with God, that's what it feels like. You're robbing me of my children, he says. Joseph is dead. The dream that I had, the promise, dead. The wife that I love, dead. Another one of my sons in prison. And now the last that I hold dear and precious, that which I cling to, you're telling me I've got to give it up. This is where he says, all these things are against me. Never thought life was against you? You weren't the first. All these things are against me. Says he went to the mouth of his tent and cried out. All these things are against me. No, 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 Jacob. Remember your name is Israel. Persevere with God. Just trust him a little more and a little more and a little more. Just let go. Just put it in his hands. You may find that the things you've already consigned to the grave are going to be living and talking to you in just a few days. He thought he was giving, surrendering the last thing, and God was going to give it back along with things back from the dead in a figurative sense. Amen. And he did it, didn't he? He let it go. Amen. And when Joseph saw it, the first question on his mind was, Amen, does my father yet live? Has it killed him? Or has he persevered with God? This one named Israel, he who perseveres with God, does he yet live? Yes, he lives. Amen. Let us go down to him at once and bring him up here. And I think the Lord is asking that of us a lot of times when we are at the brink. We are on the edge. Does the one who perseveres with God yet live? Amen. Let's go to Goshen. Hebrews 11, 11 says, Sarah herself received physical power to conceive a child when she was long past the age for it because she considered God who had given her the promise to be reliable and trustworthy and true to his word. You can't, your compass is going to be wobbling all over the place if you don't consider God who gave the promise trustworthy, reliable, and true to his word. The Bible says, Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. I see people in meetings hear the word of God, feel the promise of God, answer the call of God, and then a week later, it's like it never happened. Their north is down here in the south somewhere, and their, their needle is on an emotional roller coaster. Because they do not receive power to conceive a promise because they don't think God is trustworthy. They think God is unjust to forget their sacrifice. But God is not unjust. We are unjust. We are unfair. We are the shortchangers. We are the manipulators, the supplanters, the connivers. We are the liars. 
Let God be true and the rest liars. I want to tell you a story. And I'll wrap it up. A young man used to sit in this congregation. He received the Holy Spirit. At times, he wanted to live for God. He was sharp. He was amiable in a godly family. I remember him coming up to me after Wednesday night meetings back on 18th Street, <clears throat> asking me questions. I remember talking to him about praying and developing a relationship with God. I remember in youth meetings over here in the Santa Fe Hall. Remember when we used to have Thursday night youth meetings? I remember him. He would sit right over here on the edge of this wing. So many meetings I could see the smugness of stupidity creeping into his face. So many meetings I could see the cockiness and the arrogance, but I could feel the Lord reaching for this guy. I genuinely carried a burden for him. I loved him. Meeting after meeting, reaching, praying, hoping. I remember one particular meeting, he got a breakthrough. He stood up and it was like the fog was starting to fall out of his perspective and clarity was coming to his vision. But he couldn't maintain it. And he started getting more and more into obnoxious material, heavy metal, awful music that speaks of violence and cruelty. He became absorbed in it one night. On a particular evening, his older brother, who's only a couple years older than him, was staying in, in the house there in his bedroom. And this young man was in his bedroom, and their parents were asleep in bed. And all of a sudden, the older brother hears this shriek, and it's the sound of a woman. And he runs into the living room, shaking, and he thinks it's his mother, and she's been terribly hurt. And he, opens the door and he says, Mom, are you okay? Man in his 20s. Mom and dad are shaking and they say, Yeah, everything's fine, son. What's the problem? I heard somebody scream. He shuts the door and he goes out and he finds this young man sliding down the wall with terror written on his face. And he says, What just happened? What was that? And he says, I... I saw a demon. A demon appeared to me. And it spoke something to me that is so horrible, I can't repeat it. But it absolutely terrified me. I felt the, the tingles up and down my spine. Neither of these men had ever heard of or encountered any kind of evil spirit. And the older man says, the older boy, the brother says, what did he say? What was the words? He said, I don't want to repeat it. I don't want to say it. He said, you need to say it. You need to tell me. What did he say? Oh, the words just fill me with dread. What did it say? It said, nothing matters. Six months later, he was living in another state on a beach. And he sent his older brother a message. How much I love you all. You've meant so much to me. 
And he rolled a $5 bill into a little tube and snorted a small amount of cocaine, not enough to hurt you by all medical standards. He leaned back on his elbow, and he never moved again. That was it. Nothing matters. Why would Satan choose those words when peeling someone out of the kingdom and sucking them into the vortex of hell itself? With those words, he incapacitates all the power and potential of your coming victory. With those words, God is unjust and you are a victim. With those words, whether you do or whether you don't is irrelevant. Choices are irrelevant. Actions are irrelevant. Life is irrelevant. If the devil has one message, that's what it is. It doesn't actually matter. And so I believe if God has one message, it is everything matters. It matters. It counts. God is not unjust. He will not forget. You can change. You can serve him. You can love him. You can offer an acceptable sacrifice. You can bask in the favor of God's will and pleasure. You can be an Abel and not a Cain. Cain came to the belief that nothing mattered, didn't he? Because we don't see him offering one sacrifice after another. We see him losing heart. We see him not reaping. We see him running and hiding and doing something else. I believe if we can move the kingdom forward in this day, it is by changing from cynicism, which is the belief that nothing matters, to faith, which is the conviction that everything matters, that there is a purpose for everything under the sun. Does anybody feel their heart pulled by the vortex of that lie? Amen. Does anybody want to know the truth that will set them free? God, I matter. My life matters. My choices matter. My actions matter. My attitude matters. My feelings matter. My prayers matter. Right now, what's going through my mind and heart, it matters, God. Help me to bring every thought into captivity. Help me to believe that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hallelujah. Help me to deny the lie that accuses you of being unjust and believe the truth that what I do for you is not in vain. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. What did the psalmist say? My foot had almost slipped. I looked at the wicked and I said, nothing matters, basically. They don't do anything right and they get everything just how they want it. But if I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed the godly, he says. Because the godly is that crowd of people who believe it matters. They don't die in the pit where their brothers put them. They get out and make it to Potiphar's house and they excel there. 
They get out and make it to prison and they excel there. But they don't stop there. Amen. They go from strength to strength. And one day they appear before God in Zion. Thank you, Jesus. It matters. Amen. I want to serve notice on the devil. We don't believe your lie. We believe our life matters. Whatever our task, whatever our service, whatever it is, my prayer matters. Amen. The devil says, don't pray. It doesn't matter. And Jesus says, pray and never give up. And James says, the fervent, effectual prayer of the righteous man changes everything. Amen. It matters, people. Amen. Let's live like it matters. Let's pray like it matters. Let's serve like it matters. Let's love like it matters. Amen. I believe if that young man could come back from hell and tell you one thing, he would crawl across glass to tell you it matters. Change it now. Change it when you can because it matters. Choices matter. Attitudes matter. Feelings matter. Prayers matter. Relationships matter. Service matters. You matter because God matters. Hallelujah. That's what Brother Robert is saying to us today. It matters. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. If he could undo it, he would. You can't undo the past. There's, no, there's not even a chance of that. But you can make it matter. You can make the mistakes worth something. Brother Simeon, has his mistakes, has he not blessed us from his mistakes? Tell me the riddle of Samson, somebody. Out of the eater came something to eat. He's talking about the lion, the devil, the problem. And out of the strong came something sweet. Sometimes the sweetest thing is taken from the carcass of the biggest failure overcome. <sighs> Dip in and take a little honey. Amen. It matters. Oh, I don't have anything more to say, but let's pray and ask God to take this word into our hearts. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I keep fighting voices in my head that say to just give up. I've wandered far from home. I've wandered far from love. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me who I am and who
Strong. 